Hello, my friends. If you like this video, don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to hit that like button and share the video with your friends. Please support the channel if you can. I appreciate all the support. Uh, you can become a Patreon for as little as $1 a month, or you can make a one-off donation via PayPal if you wish. All the links are in the description box below. Thank you. So the world doesn't, in fact, consist of poor people. The world has mostly places that are low productivity, and hence the people are low productivity in those places. But if you allow those people to move to high productivity places, they acquire the productivity of the place almost totally, almost immediately. Yeah, I love that. It's like an aphorism almost in your in your uh, <laughs> scientific yeah. paper there. It's, I mean, it's as you said, the, the world has people in poor places, not poor people. It's right. it's brilliant because, I mean, seeing it that way upends a kind of persistent anti-human almost worldview that many have. When you have migration, <laughs> it, it, it messes up our mindset of development because we think of what's GDP per capita in Senegal and what's GDP per capita in Sweden. But if you think, well, what's what's the income of Senegalese? Well, the income of Senegalese can go up a lot if some of the Senegalese are working in Sweden. And it doesn't drive down the income of the Swedes in Sweden to have those Senegalese there, even though it could drive down average GDP. But average GDP per capita isn't you know, kind of the right metric. Hi all, this is Mind the Shift and I am Anders. We haven't talked very extensively on this channel about uh, uh, the mobility of human beings, but it is a topic that I personally am very very interested in, and uh, in day-to-day -day parlance, we call the phenomenon migration. My guest today probably knows everything that is there is to know about this, this uh, subject, and he has some very fascinating and uh, probably also politically controversial or radical ideas about how to look at and how to handle migration. Welcome to the show, Lant Pritchett. Thank you for having me. So I definitely want to uh, delve into both the practical implications and aspects of this topic, but and also the, the philosophical questions about who we are and how we define our rights and all that. But but first, tell a little bit about your, your background and how you arrived in the field of migration and labor mobility and 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 your uh, your engagement in this uh, organization, LAMP. Okay. Um, so my background is I've been a development economist. So as a discipline, as a professional discipline, I was trained as an economist. And as the topic of interest of economics, I've always worked on development, which I take broadly to be how do you improve the well-being of the people in the parts of the world uh, that are not already high income, that are not already well, uh, have high standards of living. And in that field, when I first entered it in 1983, and for a very long time, uh, migration or the mobility of people across borders wasn't a big deal. Uh, everybody was focused on development as a feature of places. How do we develop 
Senegal? How do we develop India? How do we develop rural regions of India? So it was very place centric. Uh, and only in the last sort of gradually, I started realizing that um, the mobility of people across places could be at least as big a way for people to improve their well-being as the continued effort to improve place. So I have never given up, you know, wanting that everybody is able to live in the place they were born and that place be productive and prosperous. But in the foreseeable future, uh, the wage differentials, which are driven by productivity differentials, are so huge that the incremental ability of people to move from low productivity to high productivity places is just far and away the largest way to improve human well-being, <laughs> biggest by orders of magnitude. And in some ways, other than the politics of it, is the easiest, uh, meaning it it's more reliable uh, and less risky than pretty much anything else we do to try and improve human well-being. So that's how I came into it. I came into it as an economist, and I came to it as a developed economist. So I don't come into it necessarily with a perspective. I don't come uh, <laughs> so the... Yeah, so that's how that's how I've. And tell, tell us a little bit about that acronym you have on on your. So on my sweatshirt here, I have the acronym LAMP, which is Labor Mobility Partnerships, and that's a small nonprofit think tank advocacy action group that I founded together with Rebecca Smith about four years ago, and we now have more than a dozen of people working, and we hope and we're continuing to grow very rapidly. And labor mobility partnerships is about creating more opportunities for people to move from the poorer parts of the world to the richer parts of the world. And I think what we are quite unique in the space of the people who talk about human mobility generally, in that we're focused on <laughs> three things that make us, as you in the introduction say, politically controversial, but I think make us in the end politically also um, the sweet spot of what kind of needs to happen. The first is that we want to acknowledge labor mobility rather than the word migration. Migration brings up these images of people moving permanently from one place in which they're embedded to another place and acquiring new routes and staying there forever. Whereas we believe that uh, temporary labor mobility can be an order of magnitude bigger than it is in the world today. And that can bring tremendous benefits to the people who move and are able to move back and forth uh, as part of doing work. Second, um, we're focused very much in our labor mobility efforts on what we call core skills, which are people who have core human skills, but not necessarily formal education. Some people call it low skill, high skill. <laughs> I prefer to call it core skill and training um, on core skill workers, because in part, those are the people that are the most blocked by the current system. You know, if you're one of the elite, like you and I, um, the world's pretty much open to us moving around. Um, whereas, you know, if you are a home health care aide or you're a landscape gardener or you're working uh, uh, in an industry or in sector and occupation that doesn't require high levels of education and skills, it's a much harder road. Uh, to move. Um, 
And the third thing with labor mobility partnerships is it's about partnerships. We can see that the private sector, the employers, <laughs> the, the people who are engaged in recruiting in the sending countries and the governments of the host of sending countries all need to work to create, to create a safe and reliable industry. Um, so the only way in which we can have large numbers of people moving is if we have a safe and reliable and well-regulated industry of people who move people in the way that you and I get on airplanes without thinking about the safety of the airplane because there's a whole industrial apparatus and governmental regulatory apparatus that has ensured that global travel is safe. Uh, in the same way, we need an industry that uh, carries out the functions of moving people back and forth between places that does it in a safe, reliable way for, to protect both the host countries uh, so that it's an orderly movement and protects the workers while they're uh, very much vulnerable to exploit, exploitation and abuse while they're in a country that's not their own. And so we think a well-regulated industry of people who people is the wave of the future. Okay, great. Now, that was the quick and, and also at the same time broad uh, <laughs> summary of, of what you're doing here and, and your ideas. And we'll get to the nitty-gritty, the, the details of it uh, mm -hmm. in a minute. But let's back up a little bit here and, and just ask you this general question, because many people are not very, I mean, familiar or knowledgeable about the the, the political details of, of migration and what's really going on. And many see it as a, as a, as a problem, basically. So this straightforward question I, I have to ask you, is migration a huge problem that needs to, quote unquote, be solved? So I, I don't... <laughs> I see migration as a huge opportunity that needs to be taken advantage of. And second of all, it's a fact of the way our current world is organized that needs to be addressed. Now, key to my thinking, and, and this is where I think the conversation heads, because is I think the reason we regard it as a problem is because most wealthy Western countries have thought there's two questions about the mobility of people, and there's really three. The two questions that the, the that frame the debate about migration, which is why I tend to use the word mobility, and I'm glad you started with human mobility, is every country in the world controls its own borders. It's sovereign to do whatever it wants about who can be present on its physical territory, and that's an intrinsic feature of nation states that no one is thinking about changing. But they've traditionally thought there's two questions. <clears throat> who, are, who are going to be the future citizens of our country? Who are we going to allow to come to our country, establish roots, and in some way, shape, or form, become part of us, whatever us means as a nation state? And then the second question was, who are the people we're going to allow to be in our country because... Um, they are movers of distress because they are because of our charitable. And so we sort of have a migration discourse, which assumes permanence and a refugee discourse, which also assumes permanence of the move potentially, but is those two are driven by very different logics. Um, and so as long as there's just those two questions, <laughs> I think it becomes a very heated and an intractable political problem. Which, which because, it has become. Absolutely. I, I mean, if those are the only two questions, 
then both of those become hotly contested over debates essentially about who is it that is us uh, and, and are we going to define who we are by who we're admitting because uh, we don't you know because there are asylum petitioners or because there's been a war somewhere else you know i think people will well, wait why are we changing the future of who we are as a society because a thousand miles away there was a war and secondly um <clears throat> now i i feel what's Going to going to change this discourse is the wealthy West has, for the last thirty years, decided to not reproduce itself. Individuals have made choices about how many children they want to have or whether they want to have children at all, and the result is the West is not reproducing itself. And the consequence of that, over in the long run, we can debate about whether you know we're happy with a smaller Italy and a smaller Spain and a smaller Sweden. But in the, in the medium term, between now, say, and 2050, the way in which Sweden's going to get smaller or Spain is going to get smaller is it's going to age. And there's going to be this interim period in which <laughs> the labor force just shrinks radically relative to the aged population. And I think as an interim way, that's just going to be politically infeasible for the social contract that exists in all of the wealthy nations. They just can't sustain their existing economy and social contract with the demography they're going to have. And so this is going to open up a question of how do we deal with this demographic transition that we're is inevitable now in a way if we only have two questions <laughs> and you can't. So our argument is the only way to deal with the Western world's demography is to open up a third question, which is who are we going to allow to live and work on our sovereign territory without any expectation they are becoming a citizen? Hmm. Is that to appease all those people who, who who feel that they might in some way, that, that that their identity might be threatened if there are too many immigrants to their country? I'm... I'm I mean, yes, yes, definitely. Um, and appease might be a stronger word than we need to use. Um, you know, and here's where we're immediately heading in, I think, to deep philosophical issues. I think there is something unique and valuable about being Swedish. I, I don't I think the idea that the idea that there is something unique and valuable about being Swedish, And that that might be threatened if we have uncontrolled, uh, if we don't control who becomes Swedish in a way, in some way. I, I think labeling that position in and of itself xenophobic or racist is, I think, just wrong. I, I think there is something unique and valuable about being Spanish or about being Italian. And these are constructed, created You know, these are socially constructed identities. The famous anthropologist Benedict Anderson has a classic work called Imagined Communities. So, you know, being Swedish is an imagined community. You don't actually know even a tiny fraction of all the Swedes, but you feel some fellow affiliation with the idea of being Swedish. And so I think preserving that is a legitimate It's not just a necessary appeasement objective. I think it's a legitimate objective. I think it's a legitimate objective that they people feel they have a valued 
set of norms and cultures and institutions that they want to maintain. And that part of maintaining that is controlling the process whereby people become part of that. Mm. I, I think it becomes too polarized if we act as if there's only a globalist perspective and everything else is xenophobic or racist. Mm. I think that's it's it's, it's not going to help a part of, to have that dichotomy, maybe. But yeah, it, yeah, there, it, so. I mean, there, there is there's difference between nations, of course, uh, and I, I, I want to get back to the philosophical question of nation yeah. states. And yeah, but, yeah. I mean, the Swe Sweden is, happens to be a fairly old uh, place. I mean, as um, <laughs> has been known as Sweden for quite some time, whereas a country like Belgium is 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 fairly recent. And uh, yeah. I mean, countries in Africa like Mali, Niger, <laughs> Chad, there. I mean, I don't. I don't know if people in Chad feel very Chadian or so, or or right. even Belgians feel very Belgian. And then there are countries who have been been, uh, I mean, uh, constructed out of immigration completely, like the United States that you live right. in. So I mean, right. there there must be a lot of different ways of looking at the nation state, even from the perspective of the people living there. Wouldn't you right. say? Yeah, and I think I I, I mean. Solzhenitsyn one time said of the USSR that it was four words, four lies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the word nation state is already problematic. Uh, there are very few states that are, in fact, nations. completely yeah. overlapping with one nation. Yeah. And there are lots of nations that one would regard in every other way as a nation. Uh, in terms of its affiliation or identity. I mean, Scotland is, Scot I feel, feel Scotland is a nation, but it's not a nation state. Um, you know, and, and a part of the tension of the world is, and I think this is important, is that I, I'm saying that these national identities are important and these national identities aren't intrinsically illegitimate, but there are also lots of other overlapping identities <laughs> <laughs> that that matter to people as well. Uh, people have traditionally, and maybe less so now, had religious identities, and people have ethnic identities that are subnational and regional identities. And so, I'm not. I think we we have lived in an era uh, of a hundred years, roughly from 1920 to today, in which the nation state at, became not just an imagined community, but in our imagination, it became the community or the predominant way in which we were organizing our political life. And that's a reality of the world. But, you know, <laughs> the number of the number, as you point out, the number of states that have a long, continuous, um, you know, history and in which the what one would regard as a nation and in which the political boundaries of the state coincide are actually very few. So mm -hmm. to refer generally to nation states, I think, is is inaccurate just to start with. Um, so, yeah, well, it's a fascinating conversation and we, we, we'll get get back to it, I guess. Yeah, we'll get back. You probably uh, know or I don't know if you know, but that I had um, Heinde Haas on the show uh, mm -hmm. years ago, actually. Also, another migration expert and uh, mm -hmm. brilliant at that. Uh, you know about mm -hmm. him, of course. And he he pointed out that uh, I mean the the episode was very enlightening as, as uh, pertains to the the flaws in what we hear about migration and and what reality looks like. There are so many misconceptions, and many of the politicians and leaders are actually conveying things to the general public that are uh, actually wrong in yeah. comparison with reality and the question is 
I mean, two questions, I guess. What are the main misconceptions around migration, would you say? And are, do the politicians don't know what the reality is themselves? Or do they know, <laughs> but think it's not convenient to say it as it is to the public? Uh, I, I don't know the politicians on any topic. Uh, <laughs> the discourse is primarily driven by by some notion of truth. It's it's. Um, uh, I I do think there are many many misconceptions, and I think a lot of them again are driven by forcing there to be only two questions. Right? It's it's driven by the word. It starts with the word migration, uh, which has like it or not, a connotation of permanence. And 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 hence, like, I, I just think if you force all conversations about whether a person can work in your country to be a question about, is that person uh, becoming part of our imagined community, you, you necessarily force the discourse into ways in which politicians are going to exaggerate the threat, I think, to the imagined community. Um, from uncontrolled migration, but at the same time, you force others into denying the economic realities. Um, so it, it's just um, amazing. And and I <laughs> I have been reading uh, Hein de Haas's, uh new book, uh, the 2023 How Migration yeah. Really Works book, which probably yeah. come at, came after your interview, but he was, I'm sure, in the process. Yeah, it's just recent. It. Yeah, tw 22 myths that he debunks. Yeah, 22 myths. Uh, and I haven't gotten all the way through it because it took me a while to get it from Amazon. But, um, but, it, but I think a lot of these myths get driven by, you know, the, you know if, if you don't have an adequate structure to have a conversation, um, it distorts the existing conversation. And there's a very, I mean, back to your question of, you know, is migration a problem? Um, it, it, <clears throat> there's political scientists, and there was this famous political scientist that went to this, uh, tell a little anecdote here, went to study the municipal politics of a city in Indiana in the 1960s that was a steel producing city, Gary, Indiana. And the first thing you noticed about Gary, Indiana at the time was that it stank. It just stank like sulfur because there were very little environmental restrictions on these steel plants and just way, you know, just stung your eyes. And so he did a careful observation of municipal politics in Gary, Indiana for a year and never once was pollution mentioned. Huh. And it wasn't those, mentioned. Those were the days. <laughs> those were the days, exactly. But this is a very, and he came up with this very important distinction that there are conditions and there are problems. And that if you don't think you can do anything about it, then you don't talk about it, mm -hmm. right? And so if if you think, if you, so your our discourse is constrained by the realm of what we think is possible. Mm -hmm. And if the municipal politics didn't think it was possible to do anything about the pollution coming out of these steel mills, why talk about it? Yeah, my eyes sting, but that's just the way the world is. It's sort of like the old joke, you know, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything, does anything about, about it. it. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. A good it's, um, it's a good analogy, actually. It's because it's a condition. So I think, you know, the discourse around any topic politically is going to be driven by what people perceive as the realm of the possible. And if the realm of the possible is 
everybody who is going to work inside our national borders needs to be on some immediate and direct path to citizenship, then the entire discourse about migration is going to be either, you know, it's going to either hide the economic reality or it's going to hide the political reality, right? Whereas what I want to do is I want to have a third question, <laughs> which is, yes, who are we going to, who would, who would it be good for Sweden to have live and work on their territory in a mutually beneficial way in a regular, orderly, but explicitly time-limited way? And I think if you open up that third question, it changes the discourse so that you're not forced into this uh, necessarily fight about our, our identity and the future of it by the question of what our labor force needs are. Um, which is which is much more thorny when you talk about identity and exactly. I, I think a lot of the. Uh, I mean, and I, I think, and and I say this as an economist. I feel a lot of the. Um, economic uh, discourse is completely beside the point. Um, you know, there's this huge, <laughs> there's this huge debate, for instance, about whether incremental immigration would raise or lower the wages of existing of of natives. Right. About this issue, there is actually just unbelievably strong consensus around that the impact whatever it is is very very small mm -hmm. right i mean and so there's this very heated debate but the heated debate is whether it's a tiny positive number or a tiny negative number okay no one is claiming because the data has limited us we're data driven you know economists you know we look at the data and And, you know, if you look at the data, you have had countries like the United States that have had enormous increases in migration. And so if there were a large negative effect, it should be relatively easy to pick it up in the data. Right. It's like, look, if something's really terrible for you, uh, you know, eventually <laughs> the data should be able to tell you quite easily how bad for you it is. Right. Um, uh And, you know, we've had enough of it around the world and in lots of ways that we can say it's a very, very tiny effect. But there's still a heated debate about it, because I think if you come from the view that you don't want more foreigners, you're going to argue it's a negative effect and it's being negative at all becomes this determinative thing of the policy changes. Uh, whereas if you're by and large benign and want uh more migration, you argue that it's a zero or a positive effect. But you're both arguing about a tiny, you know, no one arguing it, it's the predominant determinant of native wages at all or the revolution over time. So, so, but whereas if you open it up and say, okay, let's, let's say we're going to certify labor shortages in certain sectors of our economy and we're going to allow people to come here on six month, one year, three year rotational contracts and be placed in certain industries in ways that are regulated so they don't violate any of the existing labor legislation of the country and they have to pay the norm wages and everything else. But we we're not engaging in the question of who's the future of us. I think you actually, on one level, and this is, goes to your introduction, on one level, this is politically very controversial that we're going to have guest workers in our country or we're going to have temporary workers in our country. On another way, I feel it's the only way to cope with the actual demographics that the Western world has. 
because if you if you because if you look at the numbers, um, Italy, for instance, if Italy were to maintain anything like its current ratio of labor force to aged, and it's not clear that Italy is even fiscally sustainable with its existing social contract at that level of demography, but there that's on a way downward trend by 2050 without migration and these are just the standard projections of the UN system, there will only be 0.8 workers for every person over 65. Wow. Yeah, 0.8. So first of all, that's just impossible. <laughs> there's, no, there's no way 0.8 workers can sustain the, the social security system, the health insurance system, not to mention the actual physical labor force needs of aged people for care. Um, and so you have to have more workers. The problem is, if you ask, if we wanted to keep Italy's labor force to aged ratio constant at its current level by allowing migration, and by 2050, more than half the population is foreign born. Mm. And, and, and then if you look and say, <laughs> How do we maintain a sense of who is Italy and what is Italy? Yeah. Well, uh, look at look at the U.S. and the people who moved there f during, I mean, a, a century or more. I mean, they're all American. You're all American now, aren't you? <laughs> Takes a few generations, of course, but eventually. It, it, but that's see, that's exactly the issue: is the timing yeah. and the, time. the speed. I know. Yeah. And coping with the transition. Yeah. Because... And then you have these ideas of of the ten, of the temporary nature of of, of this uh, thing. And exactly. Go into exactly. that. I'm just going to say so, another thing about what yeah. Heinz often points out. You, I, I, I get the I, um, the impression that you focus on the, if if you might call it that, the the supply side. <laughs> there, no, sorry, the the demands. Yeah, the, the demand side, the demand right. side, because the Western. Societies and even East Asia and all these countries, they are they are losing people, so they need uh, a bigger labor force. But then there's the supply side, and and politicians in especially especially in Europe, probably also in in the US. I don't know so much about that, but they are they are claiming that all these migrants that are they're coming to Europe on these rickety boats on the Mediterranean, they are so poor, dirt poor, and they are subject to violence and and war and things like that. So if we help these countries to if we beef up their armies and stop the wars and, and we send them some ODA to alleviate the poverty, then problem is solved. But the thing is <laughs> that the less poor these countries get, the more people want to emigrate. So it's yeah. it's not gonna, I mean, it's not gonna help to send ODA to, to Niger or Chad or Mali because I mean the people who are arriving in Europe now, they they come from semi-poor countries like Senegal or Ghana or Nigeria, Nigeria, and they're not coming from the dirt poor countries. They're coming from right. these because they have some money in their pockets. They have mobile phones and they can see how life might be in Europe. So then they go. Right. But but this is, this is where though I I come at it uh, uh, again. I come at it as an economist, and <clears throat> the the fundamental mistake that development economics made in its birth uh, as you know i think development economics was sort of born of the decolonialization of the 1960s where all kinds of countries became and it was a wonderful thing that country 
that the people who lived in countries acquired sovereign control over what they would do. And there was an idea that, okay, with all these sovereign countries, we need to make them productive. The mistake we made was thinking <laughs> that the productivity part would be easy to transfer. And hence, it was a matter of accumulation of capital, of human capital in terms of education and physical capital in terms of machines and factories and power plants. And hence, everything And in that model, in the model in which productivity is a codifiable technical thing, then productivity moves fast and physical accumulation of factors has to catch up. That was the model on which the World Bank was built, on which development ODA was built on that model. And it turns out the one thing we know for sure is that that model is wrong. Um, what didn't happen was that productivity didn't converge. And even though education converged just in a massive way, the world's massively more schooled, at least, than it was 50 years ago, and capital per worker converged. Countries did, in fact, invest a lot, or at least, you know, saved a lot and put it into some kind of thing we could call investment. But what didn't happen was productivity didn't converge, because it turns out <laughs> productivity of countries is not primarily about knowledge or blueprints of technological things like how to generate electricity or how to build a highway with adequate depth so that it doesn't deteriorate. It turns out productivity is about complex features that are what we now call institution and political and social. Okay, so what's the relevance of all that? The relevance of all that is Senegalese are super productivity once they're in Europe. The, the productivity of a person is a function of the place they're in, not the person. So the world doesn't, in fact, consist of poor people. The world has mostly places that are low productivity, and hence the people are low productivity in those places. But if you allow those people to move to high productivity places, they acquire the productivity of the place almost totally, almost immediately. Yeah, I love that. It's like an aphorism almost in your in your uh, <laughs> scientific yeah. paper there. It's, I mean, it's, as you said, the, the world has people in poor places, not poor people. It's right. it's brilliant because, I mean, seeing it that way upends a kind of persistent anti-human almost worldview that many have. Yeah. No, no. I mean, the the and, you know, I, I have with one of my co-authors, Michael Clemens, who works a lot on migration, a paper called, you know, Development as if People Matter. Because... When you have migration, <laughs> it, it, it messes up our mindset of development because we think of what's GDP per capita in Senegal and what's GDP per capita in Sweden. But if you think, well, what's what's the income of Senegalese? Well, the income of Senegalese can go up a lot if some of the Senegalese are working in Sweden. And it doesn't drive down the income of the Swedes in Sweden to have those Senegalese there, even though it could drive down average GDP. But average GDP per capita isn't, you know, kind of the right metric mm -hmm. if you really cared about the income of people. So yes. in that's, this paper, we point sorry, out that... Yeah, that's the crux of... Yes, that's uh, the crux. And, paper. And so so uh, just to present it a little bit to, to the audience here, you, you make the case, as you've already been been touching on, of course, uh, many times, so that there are enormous gains to be made from... Right relaxed restrictions on labor mobility. And the wage gain 
of a person with low levels of schooling who moves from a developing country to a rich industrialized country is somewhere between $15,000 and $20,000. Is that right? Yep. And yeah, so, adjusted and for purchasing power. That's that. That's okay. if they spend the money in the place they're in. Okay. If they spend the money in the place they're from, it's even larger than that. I so see. That's the minimum gain. Is that's the minimum gain. Well, of course, money is a strange metric anyway because it's right. like, yeah. <laughs> so purchasing purchasing power parity. So yeah. and you have uh, surveys have shown that about a billion people or more than than that say that they would move temporarily to work in another country if they could. So there are trillions of dollars to be made each year which would completely right. dwarf all all the ODA in the world yeah. and and yet leaders <laughs> want open borders but not no, even the United Nations recognizes the massive gains that can be made so why is that don't don't they want the world to get richer <laughs> well i think yeah, the 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 answer is they want the world to get richer in a nation state way okay because after all it's in the name united nations. It's an organization of governments that control physical territories. So the World Bank, again, all of the international organizations are international organizations. They're not global organizations of people uh, in the way that social movements might be. And so, again, the United Nations, the World Bank, all of the development industry has been hinged on a nation, a place-centric view of development, right? And, and, and I want to come back to this point because I think it's important because there's two problems with the development assistance is the solution to the migration problem is it will tamp down the demand to move to Europe um, and other places. Uh, by having better development in poor countries. <laughs> the first is that, um, you know, there's been this movement within development economics uh, to use more scientific randomized control trials to investigate the true causal impacts of development interventions. And one of the Nature magazine, maybe the most prestigious uh I can't now, now I can't remember whether it was nature or science, but either nature or science, the two most prestigious, uh, you know, uh, scientific journals in the world had a paper that did an investigation of a program that it was an eight, a, a well-designed, well-implemented program to raise incomes of chronically poor people in five different countries. So we have the true kind of causal impact of what development interventions can do when they're well done and they're well designed. And the answer is you spend about $4,500 over two years of investment per household to generate $344 in incremental income in year three. That's the gold standard of what an in situ anti-poverty intervention can do. And, and income, if you compare, in comes your your suggestion. <laughs> and if you compare $344 per year gain to $15,000 per year of productivity gain by allowing person to move from the low productivity place they're in to the high pro to a high productivity place, you can see where even though I I'm in my heart of hearts a development economist, I have to admit that at least a part of what we should regard of development is moving people to high productivity places. Uh, because it's 
you know, it's just hard to make a person productive in rural Ethiopia. It's just hard. And there's no magic bullet. And, you know, the geniuses behind the movement that won the Nobel Prize for development economics a few years ago by bringing in these scientific methods, what these scientific methods have proven is just how hard it is to have impact. Um, and so they've, in some sense, helped us prove the place specificness of development. The second problem with development will solve the problem of migration is that it's not true. Uh, as you pointed out, you know, most of the people arriving in Europe and working in Europe are coming actually from richer countries in Africa, not poorer countries in Africa. And that's because and Heinrich Hein de Haas's book has a nice aspirations and capabilities graph that the capability of people to move goes up as they get richer. So, you know, it, it takes an investment to get from Senegal to France or, or you know, from an African country. And, and so actually, as countries get richer, their emigration rates go up, not down. Yeah. So if we manage to make Niger a more prosperous place over the foreseeable future, that would increase the demand of people from Niger to migrate, not decrease it. Yeah. I because the, the wage differentials, you know, if you think of the wage differentials as being $2 an hour to $15 an hour, yeah. if you go from $2 an hour to $3 an hour, you're still nowhere near 15, right? And you maybe at $3 an hour, you can now afford to get to the 15. And so that dynamic also. So, so the whole development is a substitute for mobility is just it's just empirically it's empirically wrong and it's empirically false it's yeah. empirically wrong that it's easy and doable that if europe just gave a little more money they could help and it's empirically false that helping get people more productive and more richer in poorer places would reduce the demand for mobility it would increase the demand for mobility on net yeah now paul collier another economist uh, gained yes. traction he, he has some ideas that were very uh, got a lot of attention a few years ago wrote this book called Exodus and he seems to be more worried than you <laughs> to put it mildly worried uh, about migration and um, more alarmist and he points out this risk of brain drain w what's your assessment on the risk of brain drain from countries like you you mentioned Ethiopia for instance if millions of people are leaving Ethiopia to to make uh, make gains in 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 European countries instead I think brain drain gets a lot of attention because it rhymes. Yes. <laughs> That's why I'm saying. Other, <laughs> other than that, I don't think there's a lot of analytical foundation to brain drain. So two, two, two answers to that. Let If we had the word cortex vortex <laughs> of brains moving around in a circular way, we would have a, a much more accurate and interesting picture of worrying about this problem. So I've lived and worked off and on in India. I've worked there off and on since 91. I've lived there twice. So I've quite, I, I love India. I've lived in India, been engaged with India. The idea that India <laughs> would have been better off had it been able to block people from moving to America in the 1970s is just obscene and absurd. Eventually, when India came to have a policy environment and was prepared 
to have a technological and productivity improvement, the existence of the networks between the U.S. and India played an enormously positive role. So, A, I think brain drain is very short-sighted view of how cortex vortex <laughs> can really work. I love that. Just, I love that term. <laughs> I love the term because, again, if we're just competing on that, it trips off the tongue. The rhyme lines. thing. Yes, yes. Um, uh, <laughs> second, I think the brain drain tends to assume there's a given amount of brain in the world. Whereas if we integrate one of the programs that LAMP works on a lot is what we call global skills partnerships, in which you work with countries to develop the skills they would need to be immediately and more productive once they arrive in Sweden or Spain and Italy. And what we've learned from these global skills partnerships is you can create a lot more skills <clears throat> that both create skills that get used in the country where they're created and get uh, built abroad. So if brain drain <laughs> were a huge problem, you would think there would be very few nurses in the Philippines because there's Filipino nurses all over the Gulf. It's an avenue in which Filipinos migrate to other countries, including the United States. And exactly the opposite is true. Really? There are a lot yes. of nurses in the Philippines? Yes, massive <laughs> nurses in the Philippines, because if you think about it, of the people who train to be nurses in the hopes that they meet the qualifications and move to the Gulf, many of them don't get there. Hmm. And That's so the true. net supply so of they quote unquote the have to work back home. <laughs> exactly. They or they work abroad for a while. And a lot of and this is another reason why we're in favor of temporary and, and against use of the word migration. A lot of Filipinos would love to work in the Philippines, but want to accumulate savings and income from working abroad for a temporary period. So yeah. say you get trained as a nurse in the Philippines, you pass the qualifications to work in the Gulf. They may work in the Gulf five years, 10 years, and then return. And they're still trained, not just trained in the Philippines, but they have the experience of working abroad. So there's a win-win. Yeah, it's win-win. And then the final thing is, I do think there is some risk to that, but that risk is being exacerbated by existing Western policies, by not allowing the core skilled workers to move. You know, <laughs> brain drain is a function of who the UK, I mean, from Paul Collier's book, right? Brain drain, the policies Britain is pursuing is deliberately maximizing brain drain. I mean, if you arrive in the UK, which I do all the time, because I've been living and working in the UK. I've been a migrant now, by the way, at least four times in my life. I've lived in Argentina. I've lived in the UK. I've lived in India. I've lived in Indonesia. So when I talk about migration, I, you know, <laughs> I am Spartacus. I am a migrant uh, and have been a migrant in at least four different countries. Um, but when you arrive in the UK, they're advertising. If you have high skills, come live and work here. Right. Yeah. And so they're, but if you don't, don't. Right. And so to some extent, if, and, and this is partly why, again, LAMP and I'm working on temporary core skill migration, because if you force the question to be who should be the future of us, it's easy for rich, wealthy societies to say, well, of course we want biochemists, and of course we want PhD political scientists. Well, maybe, I don't know. And of course we want, you know, tech workers. 
And when you say, how about people that are going to pick vegetables? How about people that are going to check you into a hotel? How about the core skill work? Not not to mention the nurses and the, uh, all the not other Not to mention the nurses and not to mention the hospitals the, when people are get, getting older. Right. And, and, and again, I, nurses are, again, high formal training. But if you go to a hospital, <laughs> the nurses are at the apex of the skill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, right? Yeah. There's orderlies, there's food service. You know, a, 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 an excellent hospital needs to be clean. An excellent hospital needs to have clean and well <laughs> nutritious food. Uh, well, you know, a hospital has to have people move people around. You have to get from the room to the x-ray and back. You know, all of those are, again, core skill workers that aren't nurses and aren't doctors. So, again, what I'm saying is, if Paul Collier is right that brain drain's a threat, then let's <laughs> change that by having Western countries acknowledge their need for core skill work and enabling the non-brain drain part of migration to happen. So it's not brain drain to take and take train someone to do uh, uh, be an orderly and train them in Colombia and have them being orderly in Spain. Uh, this is one of the projects we're working on. Spain and Colombia are trying to create a partnership in which people are trained to work in elder care in Colombia, which expands the number of people in Colombia to work who can work in elder care. And Spain desperately needs it. And and it's again below nursing. This isn't the high formal education mobility. So again, and they of I, course I think, have the language think, in common. I think. Also. <laughs> brain drain is one of these weird, weird, weird things where it's it's a function of what rich countries are doing, and then they use it as an excuse to not do more. But it's it's a bizarre yeah. argument from that point of view. If you think the real problem is brain drain, then change your immigration potentialities to allow opportunities for low skill workers to come. <laughs> Don't stop migration because it causes brain drain. Great, yeah, I love your explanation for that and and uh, and your clarification of what is, what is actually going on. Now, you say, uh, as far as I understand, you and and you you have alluded to it here uh, already. You advocate for a form of guest worker system. Is that a term you would use, or you mentioned I, I, the situation in the Gulf states, for instance? But you know, <laughs> in in some cases, there <laughs> there are some major. Uh, well, firstly, in some of those countries, I think Qatar, for instance, actually the majority of the population are migrants, but there are also some some uh, oh. some human rights issues there. So is there a way to do, of doing this that will make everybody happy? Uh, because a guest worker system doesn't doesn't sound very nice <laughs> to many people. It sounds uh, bad. I don't know. Well, so there's two aspects of that. No one, not me, not anybody I know is recommending that Sweden do what Qatar is doing. Why would Sweden, with its tradition of human rights, its tradition of, you know, well-run society, I, no one in the world is asking them to create an abusive, potentially human rights-threatening thing. That's why, you know, I talk about an industry of people who move people that's well-regulated, according to the host country. So, <laughs> you know, I don't use the word guest worker. I use rotational labor mobility because I'm attempting to rebrand the idea um, because you're right. There have been in the past been two ways in which guest worker programs have failed to deliver on the promise. One is the Gulf sort of issues around whether the workers are adequately protected from abuse and exploitation. But 
I have a hundred percent confidence that if Sweden were to create a program of rotational labor mobility, it could do it without human rights abuses. Because Sweden's Sweden, it's not Qatar, right? Uh, and Germany's Germany, and Spain is Spain, and Italy is Italy. Um, and 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 you know the idea that if Italy were to do this, it would do it in the way that Qatar does it. I, I don't understand why anybody would think that. We don't. You don't do anything else like Qatar does it. Why would Sweden suddenly, because they have decided to allow some people to be physically present to work on Swedish territory on temporary contracts, why would they do it in an abusive way? I don't think they will, and they won't. That's why we need to do it well. And so part of what LAMP is, is how do we get the industry up to the standards? So Sweden is not going to allow some fly-by-night airline to fly into Sweden. They're going to say, look, if you want to fly into Sweden, you know, Sweden isn't going to allow some fly-by-night uh, uh, shipping company access to its ports. If you don't meet our safety standards, you don't meet our safety standards, you can't be in the port, uh, you know, in the Swedish ports. So no one is talking about taking the Gulf model and replicating in Europe. Uh, I, I'm certainly not, and I don't think anybody really is. The second way in which it, the guest worker program failed, and the reason why I don't like to use the word guest worker, is... <clears throat> You know, Germany and other countries recruited workers from abroad with no plan. It wasn't actually a rotational thing. They invited, for instance, Turkish workers to come to Germany, and they had no plan. They didn't have a plan for those Turkish workers to be rotational and contractual and actually enforce the return. And neither did they have a plan for those Turkish workers to become German citizens. At the time in the 1970s, there was no way to become a German citizen if you were a Turk. So, so the previous guest worker programs also weren't rotational. Yeah. Right? They ended up in a kind of a limbo or something. Exactly. And so I think when we talk about fairness, I think most people have this sense that the entitlement to the claims on the society are kind of earned by participation in society over time. And I think... I and most others have this sense that it's just unfair to ask someone to work and live in Sweden for 40 years and then when they retire say go home. No 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 you you've earned entitlement to Swedishness by being there for a long time. So that has right? to be built into the system as well you mean? Exactly. That so that's why we're building in rotational because by the same token no one thinks if a student you know, if somebody comes and does a PhD study or a master's study in a Swedish university, no one thinks that entitles them to Swedish citizenship. It's like, no, you came to do this thing, and we have a whole bunch of ways in which we allow you to be legally present on Swedish territory. We allow you to be a tourist. We allow you to be a visitor. We allow you to be a student. And those come with a range of expectations about what you're entitled to. And you're not entitled to everything that a Swedish citizen is entitled to merely because we've allowed you to be on our territory. I'm, I think just extending that analogy to workers is a natural thing. It, it's like, look, we'll, you know, we'll allow you to study for two years at our university, and that will come with certain protections and no abuse of your human rights. But it also doesn't entitle you to everything that has been earned or acquired in some way by the existing Swedish citizens. And we may then also have a path to citizenship, but that path to citizenship has requirements. Right? So again, I think, I think guest workers has both the notion of abuse of human rights, which we at LAMP are working to say, how do we build 
German style, Swedish style rotational labor mobility in which a key element of that is protecting workers from exploitation and abuse. And the second part of guest workers is the rotational wasn't actually part of the previous guest worker programs. And I think the rotational, you know, is part of making it fair. I think people think it's, you know, um, the way the world is. Um, we expand your opportunities by allowing you to study in Sweden. But just because we allow you to study in Sweden doesn't entitle you to citizenship. And we expect you to go home when your studies are over. Then, no of course, no know, one questions that as no. a legitimate way of regulating access to Swedish territory. And I don't see why we have a fetish about labor. Then, hmm. of course, we might have have more of a circular kind of migration, uh, rotational kind of migration, hadn't the border restrictions been so harsh, which is a paradox in many people's yeah. eyes. But it's actually what's what happens when you when you have tougher border controls than the, the people who want to enter that country, they 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 if they succeed in entering, they never leave because this was a one-off. I can never do this again. I have to stay. <laughs> yes, one of my I, I try and have pithy aphorisms, and one of them is you can't control the border at the border. <laughs> no. You have to control <laughs> you have to control the border from the sending country to the host country and back. And because if you try and control the border at the border, you get what the U.S. has, which is if I make it across the border, I stay forever because the only risk was coming across. Well, it's what's um, happening and, in Europe as well. I mean, in France exactly. and Spain, they had a lot of circular migration before people from uh, the former French colonies were, were working for a right. few years in France and then went back to to Cote d'Ivoire or whatever and uh, back and forth like that. Right. and 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 that's partly, again... You know, the reason why labor mobility partnerships is plural. You also, you know, <clears throat> I, I was just in Spain recently discussing, you know, migration issues. And they point out that the security apparatus in Europe wants the, you know, sending countries to cooperate in return. They want Senegal <laughs> to cooperate with European authorities in sending Senegalese back to Senegal. <laughs> and it's like, you wouldn't, never in a million years would Germany agree to that uncompensated, unrewarded. Like the Senegalese government, like, what are you talking about? These are massively productive income earning opportunities for Senegalese. And if you want us to cooperate, how would we justify that to the Senegalese people? Unless it's part of a program in which we have cooperated in allowing a regular orderly way of this happen. But just the idea that the first stage is of cooperation between Senegal and Germany or Senegal and whoever is the Senegalese government works with them to force Senegalese back to Senegal without any promise of anything in the future, I think is just surreal. Whereas if you say, we're going to have a border, we're going, we're going to need workers, we're going to have some of those workers come from Senegal. Let's work with labor brokers and recruiters in Senegal. Let's work with the Senegalese government and how that rotational mobility can be both protected from abuse in the in the you know there are kind of five functions of a 
of a rotational ability. There's the recruitment, there's the preparation, there's the placement, there's the protection, there's the return. Let's have those five functions of a mobility industry professionalized, standardized, regulated in the ways that, again, the, U the global airline industry is, trans is regulated, the global shipping industry is, is regulated in order to address the concerns. And then we can have Senegalese willingly participating in a partnership to do that. Yeah, it shouldn't be rocket science, really. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by the way, I, I love the phrase shouldn't be rocket science because it turns out I have a son who's a physicist. Okay. And he says, by the way, rocket science is super easy. Yeah. I can teach you rocket science in an afternoon. Brain surgery dealt, then. <laughs> it, 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 it's rocket implementation. Okay. It's building a rocket that's yeah. hard. Rocket science is delta V, right? Yeah. Delta velocity and what, you know, it's it's pretty straightforward. But building a rocket that's safe and reliable is that. So at LAMP, our, our thing is we want to do rocket implementation. The, the benefits to this isn't rocket science it, and or it is rocket science. It's easy. It's easy that if you move somebody from a high productivity place from a low productivity to a high productivity, there's gains to the place that come from, the gains to them, and there's the gains to the place that needs them. Doing that in pragmatic practice is rocket implementation. And that's what I think we need to put more focus on, and not the theory of migration, but the practice of. We haven't even uh, mentioned remittances, I think. Have, have we? I mean, not yet. Not also yet. We can do that now because, I mean, that's an enormous yeah. amount of money as well that, that flows yes. back from those people who are temporarily or permanently or whatever working in rich countries, sending and, back money to their countries. And which, by the way, <clears throat> that, that channel, also the existing system in some ways works to break that channel. Because, again, if the, if you just get across the border... And once you're there, enforcement is weak and you hide in an existing informal way, creating, you know, perceived problems of illegality and formality and lack of respect for rule of law. You also break the link to your hometown. And so remittances go down. Whereas if you know I'm going back in three years or when my contract's over, your incentive to save and remit money and maintain your existing familial and kinship and network relationships in your host country is high. And so to some extent, we would benefit that the rotational is going to lead to higher, I think, levels of remittance and, and connections than the existing, you know, let's, let's, again, let's get there in any way we can. And because we know, and because we know once we're there, <laughs> people want us, you know, and I think, again, Heinda Hasbrook has a great description of this, that the reason people are going to these countries is they know people want them to work there. It's not like, you know, when they say, oh, Swedes don't want immigrants. No, 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 that's not true. <laughs> um, Swedes want to control who is in their country. Swedes want orderly. But the idea that, you know, people get into Germany or get into France and can't find work just isn't true. Um, I mean, they, they, the, the, the employers are desperate and these labor shortages are just on the path to grow over time. There's just not going to be enough native born workers to meet the needs of these societies to meet their existing social contracts without it. So we do, we as the West do want them, 
we just haven't settled on how and what are the modalities in which that will happen. I think you're right. Makes sense. And we can see these labor shortages, shortages that, you, that you mentioned growing. So, uh, Lant Pritchett, one might think that uh, the right to, to live where you deem fit would be mm-hmm. just as, uh, as basic a right as the right to free speech or mm-hmm. religious freedom. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's not. But we don't stop New Yorkers or Kansans from moving to Texas, do we? We only stop people from moving over this uh, famous you know, nation-state border. So are we primarily humans or are we primarily citizens? Mm. There we are at the rub of that. And I think, I, I think humans are, <clears throat> in a very deep level, uh, um, and I'm trying to think of the right word, but we have local i think we're humans are more local than most of the discourse uh, talks about um we're <clears throat> and so I, I i i am in an awkward place where you know economists t- tend to be libertarians in many ways and many of my friends are in favor of open borders and I'm less convinced of open borders than maybe others because I do think these identities are important to people. And some of them, but how these identities are mixed up with the need to control the border, I think is a very complex issue. Because there are demonstrably nations that have maintained a sense of identity that's quite strong and quite without ever controlling borders. So the Basques, the Basques are a people. The Basques, I think, are arguably a nation. They've never, I don't know, historically, but they haven't for hundreds of years ever controlled their borders. The the Kurds, perhaps? Kurds? The Kurds, exactly. So there's lots of nations that have never been states. Um, Anyway, I I, I just think... uh, uh, it's easy. It's it's quite easy to create a very nominally compelling ethical case that the right to live wherever you want is like the right to free speech. It should be a fundamental human right, and we should have open borders. A, I think politically, it's not going to happen. That's not how the world's organized, and not how the world is going to be organized in the foreseeable future. And B, I am more sympathetic than most of my many of my friends to the idea that there's something unique and valuable and important about maintaining identities. And those identities can change over time and they can be inclusive. And so the U.S., you can be American and America has is, you know, it's got different subpopulations, but has primarily been built by the idea that Americanism, being an American is an open identity. I think all these identities will have to become more open o- over time to survive. But the idea that that maintaining the importance of a national identity is in and of itself ethically wrong, I'm less convinced of that. Uh, I have a friend, Angus Deaton, who is a very famous economist and um, is Scottish. Well, laureate, I think, isn't he? Yeah. And he says, you know, He thinks that if the identity of being Scottish disappeared from the world, something unique and valuable would be lost. 
I think that's true. And I, and so when I hear people in Europe saying we need to have a system of human mobility that acknowledges and recognizes the value of our Dutch identity or our Swedish identity or our Finnish identity, I don't react to that with saying that's deeply wrong and immoral to think that. I also don't think that's an obstacle to much more openness than we have of people moving across borders, as long as we have an open and honest conversation about these three questions. Who's the future of us? Who's going to be allowed to live and work and under what terms and conditions? And who are we going to allow to live in our country because they're movers of distress? And I think if we have three conversations and not two conversations, we can get around this open borders versus closed borders silliness um, because it's it's mainly silliness. It's not going to happen. Land Pritchett, Pritchett sorry. Uh, so where can people go if they want to know more about uh, you and your work? <laughs> well, Do you have uh, a website? Yes, our lamp lampforum.org is our website. We have what we're doing. And again, Lamp Forum is an interesting thing because it's both action. We think rocket implementation is important and advocacy. We want people to understand rocket science is possible. It is possible to go to the moon, but going to the moon requires hard work of creating, you know, the rocket implementation. So LAMP as an organization feels that if we, that the operational is inspirational. If okay. we can show Swedes that the choice isn't guest workers or not having workers, if we can show Swedes that rotational labor mobility is consistent with Swedish values, I think, and it can be made to work in a reasonable way, I think we can convince more Swedes to move ahead in that way and more Europeans generally. And we won't have this. The politics currently is way more fractious than it needs to be. Great. Thank you so much for a super interesting conversation. And uh, I mean, we could talk for another couple of hours, I guess, but uh, maybe we can do it again sometime, someday. Okay. So good luck with your, with your uh, important work there now. And uh, thank, thank you. Thank you very much.